0: So I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, chapter 5. Chapter 5, and we are moving along to the end of this chapter in a two-part series that I hope to conclude, Lord willing, next week. Uh, the witness for Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at, this morning, verses 30 through 37. So John chapter 5, reading verse thirty. To 37. Let's read that together. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. Father, we thank you. These words on first impression can seem somewhat enigmatic to us, somewhat mysterious, but we know... As we read it, Lord, that something powerful is going on here as you give full testimony to your position in this triune God as a second member, the Son of God sent as the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. So, Lord, help us as we work through this text, this that you've appointed for us this morning, that it would work efficaciously in our hearts, that is, having full effect according to your intention on us, O Lord. May we stay focused and alert, for all these things go deep, as we see in the text. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, working in us, illuminate these words to us. Do your work in our hearts, O Lord, for we alone have no hope, of doing heart work ourselves. So we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory's sake. Amen. So just a reminder that this portion of Scripture, verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 47, is one long discourse from the Savior. He's stirring it up here. He's saying some things that are curling their... No, not curling their head, It's spinning their heads around on their shoulders he is making it very clear that he is nothing less than God himself, that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we've seen that in our last uh, section when we, in the last sermon I preached three weeks ago, like father, like son. He's giving his, his examples. So in doing this, he's ups- upsetting uh, the religious establishment. They are already very, very opposed to what he's saying. These, these, these claims that he's making are, to them, outlandish. They're, they're unorthodox, certainly, to them, in terms of what they consider orthodoxy or right doctrine, right understanding. It's in direct violation of their understanding, which, of course, they derive in large measure from mankind. From their own scribes who have added on to the law of Moses and so on. And so we had the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda just before this discourse, and a man who has was stricken lame for thirty eight years was healed, but he did that intentionally on the Sabbath, a direct violation of the traditions of men, which already has caught their attention and they're upset. Does he back off? Is he a people pleaser? Is he seeking the approval of other people? No, he goes in headlong, and makes it clear. And in that message three weeks ago, when we looked at uh, verses 17 through 23 in "Like Father, Like Son," he's essentially they're declaring his equality as the son of God to the Father himself, and they know who that means. That means God. You making yourself equal with God is blasphemy, they say in another chapter. And so they, of course, are already making plans to stop him. They're already in this fifth chapter only out of 21 making plans in their minds and in their conversations to kill him. So... In like father, like son, he set out just to bring a reminder and to bring you up to speed to where we are today, this morning in our text. There were six ways in which he compared himself to the father. He compared himself in verses 17 and 18 in works. In works, he's like father, like son. Verse 17, my father is working until and until now and I am working verse 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him he made himself equal whatever the works of God are doing those are my works is what tantamount to saying that because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God so there it is that's blasphemy That's all we need to hear. From here, we just have to find a way to uh, sort of surreptitiously or, or in a very clandestine way because there's so many followers that he's going to have. We've got to do this privately. And, of course, as you know, they try him at night, which is against their own laws, and they kill him. So he's like the father in works. He's like the father, secondly, in will. You remember verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You wonder at what point they just stopped listening. This This is very upsetting to them. They're very, very perturbed here. And third, he's like the father. As the son in love, verse 20, number four, he's like the father as the son in life. As we looked at verse 21, where it says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 26 as well, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. He goes on and he goes on. This is intentional. He's setting deliberate prophetic wheels in motion here. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He can read their minds. He proves that in other places. So he knows that. So fifth in authority as well, as we looked at verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Oh, really? Verse 27 as well. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So he's not only the son of God, he's the son of man. That's the only way he's going to qualify as an adequate sacrifice for that particular species. He must be a man, but he must be a perfect man. So he's the only one who can fulfill that role. Just amazing. Finally, the sixth way in verse 23 in Honor in verse 23, where he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You just said that we should worship you like we worship God. Wow. So he's pre- presenting his claim here. This is the accusation of blasphemy. It's a crime, obviously, in their laws, punishable by what? By death punishable by death. But what's interesting here, as I'm reflecting on where we've been, where he's laying out the claims, and now where we're going now, and in verse 30 to the end of the chapter, it's just like a criminal court case. What he's done in verses 19 through 29 is lay out his claims like a good defense attorney would who's being accused of murder. But he's being accused of murder by the very claims he's making. It's ironic, isn't it? But this is the the fantastic thing. In the text we have before us this morning, in verse 30 to 47, he's calling his star witness. His star witness is no less than the Father himself. The Father bears witness, and he does so through Many different means. The works, right? All of the miracles he's performing, he connected his works with the Father. So you can't, they're inextricably woven together. You're not to pull them apart. When the Son does a work, it's a work that the Father's doing. It's a work that he's given the Son to do to qualify as a Savior for those that the Father has written in a book a long time ago. Written names in a book to give as a love gift to his son, these souls that the son would come to save. This is extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. But I like how this is laid out. And he doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't try to soft pedal anything. He doesn't try to, he doesn't equivocate. He doesn't sort of, well, you know, he doesn't leave anything out. He just speaks the truth He lays the claims. All of those that we looked at, like Father, like Son. This is equality with God. This God, this Trinitarian God that functions in unity with no confounding of the persons, no mixing of the persons, but no division of the substance. Co co eternal, co essential, in essence. It's one God that we serve. Anybody got this Trinity figured out yet? If you do, I could use it and get it in my notes. So he's turned to the Father, the one that they worship, but they don't know him. Jesus makes that point over and over again so that he can vindicate himself. He's vindicating himself with the thing that he always vindicates himself with, the truth. This is the truth. And I like how he's unflinching in terms of how he just brings the truth in a proclamation, standing there, really a nobody in their eyes, no army, no weapons, just his mouth, just his words, speaking the truth. And these claims that he's making are absolutely true. So this is this is remarkable. He's um, this. Obviously, is unmistakable and indisputable that he is God but they're not accepting that they're, they're rejecting that because of so much that comes with accepting who you just said you are and what you came to do that upsets quite an apple cart we'd have to give up our lifestyles we'd have to actually live his way I don't intend to give this up look at how he lives he lives like a pauper he has no house he doesn't have a rock to lay his head on He has nothing. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into town. We should sign on with him? I don't think so. But it's just important to clarify something right up front in this introduction. And that is that it's not, therefore, after all that we've just now reviewed this morning, it's not for lack of evidence that they're rejecting him. It is a willful lack of desire to want him, to accept him, to embrace him as their Messiah. You see, because they had something in mind with regard to what he was coming to do. When the Savior comes, when Messiah comes, he's going to raise up an army and free us from Roman oppression. Remember, they tried to make him a king. They thought he was going to be a... He was a conquering king, and he's going to deliver them from the Roman government. So, as one writer said, the plain truth is that the chief seat of unbelief is in the heart. So it's not for lack of evidence. It's simply a heart issue. It's not lack of evidence. It's an unwilling heart. I don't want to accept what you just said. I mean, he's proven it over and over by all of the miracles that he's completed. He does them, uh, they're powerful miracles. They're not little minor things like, you know, fixing a hand hangnail. He's like restoring limbs. He's like restoring eyes, things like that. He does powerful things, but he does them publicly as well. There are hundreds and hundreds, untold hundreds of people who are witnessing these miracles right before their very eyes. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this enigmatic sounding statement speaks to the indissoluble union between the father and the son. I can't do anything on my own. I have no will of my own. That's foreign to the triune God. The son serves the same will as the Father, they're connected. And that's as far as we can get in our limited minds We, in terms of trying to conceptualize this. It's just amazing. The other difference between the passage where we've been in this discourse and where we are now, you may have caught your attention or not, is he's speaking in the third person in verse 19 through 20, uh, 29. He's speaking in the third person. He's re- referring to himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man. And now here, he's using personal pronouns. It changed now. He's saying, I. He's making it very personal. Why? Because he's calling on his Father's defense to come to his defense. And he does. It's just, it's masterful. Jesus showing the Son. Shows that the Son never operates or functions independently from the Father. <laughs> Father and Son, you could say, move and think and will together in perfect, perfect, syncratic, if you will. I don't even know if that's a fair term. Orchestration. Beautifully. Together. It's just amazing. So it's a, a perfect, harmonious outworking of the will together. He said in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only that what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So it's impossible for him to do or say anything that the Father isn't doing or saying. That's how this works. It's likewise, by the way, with the Holy Spirit. Same thing. He says, he speaks of that which he hears, the Holy Spirit does. So the Holy Spirit functioning together as the third member of the triune God works in perfect concert with the Father and the Son. All of three work together. It's quite amazing. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not... And then some versions have the word deemed true. There, Which I find helpful, because if you just read it the way uh, the other versions have it, uh, my testimony is not true. Well, when is the Son of God's testimony ever anything but perfectly true? As a matter of fact, we measure truth by what he, what he says. He can't speak an untruth, because if a word comes out of his mouth, it's truth. Because he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All life comes from him. All truth comes from him. We're on a planet where the prince of the power of the air with the God, small g, of this world is what? John 8, He's a liar, Jesus said. So you have he who is the truth, in contrast to him who is nothing but a liar. If he opens his mouth, it's a lie in every case. So that's the difference here. So, But what he means, what Jesus means here, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. I like that inserted, even though it's not in the original text, because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about, if I'm, if I'm alone making my own testimony for myself and who I am, if there's no one else to bear witness to what I'm saying, you're just going to figure it's a lie. But he's got a witness. Oh, he has a witness. He's got the Father himself. So Jesus is saying, essentially, if I were the only one testifying to these majestic claims that I've just laid out to you that are that are turning your heads, you dismiss them as false. But I'm not alone. I'm not alone. In John chapter 3, if you remember, Nicodemus, remember what he said. I mean, they acknowledged that Jesus spoke the truth. There was no question about it. A man of the Pharisees, John 3, verse 2, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know... Underscore that we know what that you are a teacher come from God. Well, why aren't you doing what he's saying then? If you know that here's a ruler of the Jews, he's a, a Pharisee. He's, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land there. There's only 70 of them on that court, save the high priest So this is Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They knew it. There's the first witness, the witness of the works. I mean, if you're not going to believe me, he says in another place, believe the works. You don't have to like me. You don't have to believe me. Believe the works. If this isn't efficacious for life change, I mean, if it is, but you don't like me, he could say, then look at what God is doing. It's obviously a a good tree if the fruit is good. If the fruit is bad, it's a bad tree. Remember Matthew 7? And if it's bad fruit, then make the tree good, he says there, so that it produces good fruit. So that's how you can measure whether or not somebody is. And and Nicodemus is making this plain here. You remember that when we went through chapter 3. John 8, in John chapter 8, verse 12 to 14, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The reason I say it like that is because they're mocking him here. They're taking his statement from chapter 5 that he made himself and they're mocking him with it here. Oh, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 14 of chapter 8. Jesus said, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. And I know where I am going. That shut that down right there. A few verses later in John 8, 17 and 18, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Where the Father came from, that's where I came from. I was sent by the Father. As a matter of fact, my work is done here. I will ascend and go back to be with the Father. Who's he saying he is? I mean, is is there any misunderstanding here? They say in another place, you're familiar where they say to him, well, if, if you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. I think that's in like chapter 10 or something. How much plater does it have to get? You're playing games here. It's willful, you see. It's not lack of evidence. It's not like they haven't seen or heard enough. This this twenty one chapter fourth gospel is massive in terms of its evidence it's the deity of Christ literally from verse one of chapter one all the way through to the very end in chapter twenty one everywhere we go I'm, I, I'm actually sometimes i'm wondering if you're if you're uh, if you're curious why every time I come up here to preach out of John's gospel I'm saying there's there's clear evidence of his deity here. You're like, hey, you said that last week." And the week before by the way, and you said that last month. <laughs> that's why we that's why we use this gospel to give to people that don't know the Lord. I remember a young man who wanted to date my daughter, you know. She had professed Christ, a believer, and he was he was, he was a bad hombre. He was a bad dude. And I said, look, uh, I talked to him for five hours. So he, was, he really had his eyes fixed on my daughter. And I said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. I can't tell her what to do. She's an adult and so on. But she's a Christian. She's my daughter. She's not only in my family. She's in the family of God. And if you can't come to terms with that yourself, you do not belong to this family, right? Was I wrong there? Dads, grandpas? Thank you, brothers. I appreciate it. Glad you came. (laughs) They're not saying anything. (laughs) Yeah. And so I said, read, just read John's gospel tonight and answer one question. Just one. Just one. Tell me who Jesus is. That's all. I mean... You have to deny every verse in every chapter because it's all his declaration of his deity and messiahship. Every bit of it. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And then in verse 32, 3, right after that he mentions, you sent John, John the Baptist, he's referring to here. So is verse 32 talking about John the Baptist? Who's he talking about here? There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So first of all, just to talk about the Greek a little bit, the Greek is in the present tense. So this other witness is presently active bearing witness to Jesus as the Christ. Well, by this time, John's ministry has pretty much concluded. So it really is not John. It couldn't be referring to John the Baptist. So without mentioning who it is, the witness must be referring to the Father. There's no one else it could be referring to. It's a constant present tense. So this other Witness is constantly bearing witness. There's, it's inescapable. This witness that God the Father is making for His Son is going on all the time. Aren't we told in Romans 1 that we should be able to look out the window and see the testimony of a Creator God? That kind of thing. The transformation of people that have come to know Christ and those who are being transformed and growing in His likeness and so on. That testimony is ongoing. It's a constant present tense. It's no question in my mind who he's talking about here, but it's also confirmed in verse 36 and 37. We'll skip ahead just to make that point. Verse 36, but the testimony, Jesus says, that I have that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing. Here it is. Bear witness about me that the father has sent me verse 37 and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice. You have never heard his form. You have never seen. So this is the father The Father's ministry doesn't start and end. He's an eternal being. He's the only eternal being. God is the only eternal being. The rest of us have our created beings. So he's constantly bearing witness about the Son. Verse 33, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So who's the you there? The you is, the people he's talking to. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders who are there trying to interrogate him and question him and are listening to him so that they can find something to hang him with. It's them. That's the you, okay? So you sent John. This is John the Baptist. You sent John the Baptist. So you've got this other witness who we learn as the father, but you sent John the Baptist. He has borne witness to the truth. So John the Baptist, a guy you all approved of, he spoke the truth. There were people coming from every hill and vale to come and listen to John the Baptist. They were sending them. They thought he was a prophet, but nothing more. They didn't see him as the prophet who would be the forerunner prophesied in the Old Testament, and their scriptures. No, just he's just another prophet, but he's sent by God. So they listen to him. He's born witness to the truth. With regard to John the Baptist, when he was saying this about Jesus, you remember in chapter 3, verse 31 to 35, John the Baptist said this about Jesus. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Who are they talking about there? Who did God send? Jesus. The words that he spoke are the words of, of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Verse 34 in our text. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. So look, it's not all about John the Baptist. I'm not basing everything on a human being, however venerated or respected John the Baptist might be in your thought of him as a prophet. It's not based on a man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. So to reassure his deniers when it says, you know, not from man, the testimony that Jesus Christ, the son of God is, is not from man, but from the father. That's what he's been trying to tell them. And he's made those claims and now he's called his witnesses. And his star witness, the main witness who has sent the other witnesses including John the Baptist is no one less than the Father God himself. Zechariah's prophecy. You remember John the Baptist's father? We read some of this usually around Christmas time in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1 verse 76. Here's what he's Zechariah's prophesying about. His own son John the Baptist. Here's what He's going to do and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So it's as if it's as if Jesus is saying you are convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet who spoke the truth. If he's telling the truth, why do you not act upon what he says? See, when you, when you embrace a false system of belief, it doesn't take long when it runs head-to-head head with the truth that it starts to unravel. Truth is monolithic. It's a solid hole that pierces through the fabric of lies. And so things start falling apart for the Pharisees as they're listening. That's why it takes them so long to figure out a way to condemn him. Right? So they can see this is happening here. I'm just reminding you of the claim he made about me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember when John said that? Jesus could be saying to them right now, he spoke the truth. Remember when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't you believe him now? When did you stop believing him? It doesn't take a, even a lay counselor to take apart the falsehood of their beliefs. It's, it's clearly biased beliefs when things come apart as you start to interrogate the premise. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. You were sending people to John the Baptist. You were having them get baptized by him. It was just, it was fantastic. But you don't believe what he said. You're dismissing, or what are you doing with what he said? Is it so general what he's saying that you can form fit the lies of your expectations around it? Yeah. Oh, sure. He's the, behold, the Lamb of God who who's, takes away the sins of the world. He's the Savior. He's the King. And the King's coming to conquer the Roman government. Still works, still okay. What happens? Well, that same Lamb of God starts speaking. Start adding details to the gospel. And what happens to them? Not so popular anymore. Not so rushing to be baptized by by this man, who John the Baptist proclaimed as the Messiah. (laughs) I say these things so that you may be saved. That's why I'm telling you these things. It's not to to pick an argument with me. I I didn't come just to refute your false beliefs, which that'll get done by the truth itself. Moses himself can refute you. By the way, your venerated Moses, the laws that you say you go by, do you know who they speak of? They speak of me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. But we won't go there right now. (laughs) That's too much too soon. I have, it's like, Jesus says in John chapter 13, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them all now. <laughs> so that's what's masterful, is how he measures out the things that he gives to them. It's like, it's like feeding a child. You can't give them too much. They won't be able to metabolize it. They could choke on it, right? He wants them to be saved, but they can't on the lies that they embrace. No, no, no. You have to shed that. Nicodemus at least had the moral fortitude, the the character to at least come to me at night and say, what does this you must be born again mean? He's a brilliant man. It was a ruler of, of, of Israel, a Pharisee. He's on the Sanhedrin. This was no lightweight, no intellectual lightweight. And I think he was totally sincere when he came to Jesus. And I think him... And Joseph of Arimathea, that gave his tomb up for the body of Christ, were both saved. I like to think they were. They took great risks to do what they did to take care of the interred corpse of our beloved Savior, right? It's good to be hopeful about those kinds of things. You. It's like he's saying, you, 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 you must accept and believe who I am as the Christ, the Son of God, or you cannot be saved. You, you can't dial this in in a way that makes you more comfortable. The gospel is a polemic. It's going to challenge us. Why? Because we're sinners, folks. We want to do things our way, we want the things that we desire you can't deny this. Who he is, is an essential of an Orthodox gospel. If you give them bits and parts of this, no wonder they're not getting saved. Giving them all the easy parts to to speak about regarding Jesus without telling them who he actually is, not just as Savior, but as Lord. We don't, by the way, we don't make Jesus Lord. No. Why not? Because <laughs> he, he is. Thank you. Amen. He is Lord. You don't make Him anything. Verse 35. Still speaking of John the Baptist. He was a, Jesus saying, He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. He's appealing to them here. You, you, you were drawn to him. There was something about the things that he said. You could see a role that was God sent in him. What about that? What happened to that? He's a burning and shining lamp, but he was a lamp. We'll see the difference of those two terms between the lamp and the light, and we had talked about that earlier in chapter 1. The difference between the lamp, which is John the Baptist, and the light, which is Christ. Back to Zechariah's prophecy for his son, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, picking up where we had left off. Here's what he says. He's come to give knowledge. He's, John the Baptist is born and coming into this world to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace is that not glorious so that's why even just as a man god imbued upon him if you will infused him if you like that word better with a with a luknos, with a with a lamp but that that thing is A thousand watts compared to us. He was a bright, shining light. The words he said were burning. But they lit a path. We knew truth. We know where to walk. How to find the Messiah. What happened to that? Jesus is asking them. Getting them to look at their hearts. See, that's the key, isn't it? not winning an argument. Get people to look at their hearts, yeah? Yes, precisely. See, it says, notice, by the way, speaking of John's ministry being over, notice the tense in the first two words of verse 35. He, meaning John the Baptist, was. So whether or not he's in prison or he's already been beheaded, in any case, his ministry is through. He served his purpose as that forerunner. So the other witness couldn't be him. It's the Father. And he makes that clear in verse 36 and 37. He was a burning and shining lamp. As I said, lamp is lucknos in the Greek. It's lucknos in the Greek means a lamp that receives its light from another greater source. The light is the Greek word phos, P-H-O-S. That's the source of all light. Usually has the definite article in front of it, the light. That's Christ. He created this. This light is physical light. You can talk to a scientist, don't ask me, and they can explain what this light is that makes you see right now. But this light, this light turns a lamp on in your heart. This is different than this light. See, that was him. But that source of light that lit this particular lamp in John the Baptist was an effulgence of illumination. So they were drawn to him. They were drawn to him. John 1, 6 to 9, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Remember this? He came as a witness. He's one of the Father's witnesses to bear witness about the light. That's the foes. He's bearing witness about the source of all light, physical and Spiritual that all might believe through Him. You were listening to Him. He was even recognizing who I was when I came. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happened? Verse 8 of chapter 1 of John, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So, where it uses the word light, referring to John the Baptist or any other human being for that matter, it's Luknos. It's a different Greek word. Jesus owns phos. That's him. That's him. And him alone. Now, in John 10, 41 to 42, It says, and many came to him, this is Jesus, many came to Jesus, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now, this has to be a superficial belief. Now, they believe that he's telling the truth, even though he didn't do signs. Jesus did multiple, numerous miracles. He was healing. He was doing all kinds, restoring sight to the blind. He was doing all of these things. And yet they don't believe him. They've got questions for him. They didn't question John at all. John committed or or performed zero miracles. None. Yet they believed him. You see, all along, one point to be made this is a heart issue. This is a heart issue whether or not you believe. It's not an evidentiary situation. It's important for us to know that so we know how to pray and we know how to witness. It'll help you to focus the questions that you have because the questions that you'll have, and by the way, questions are much more effective than telling people truths that you know. It just sounds prideful. You know, you don't mean it that way, but it just sounds like we sound like a know-it-all. If they're rejecting Christ, they're rejecting the truth up to that point. So um, it's best if you use questions. It's best if you use open-ended questions to try to delve into what the heart issues are for them and use, use the characterization of their lives as a platform for the gospel. Love seeks to know ask questions, get to know them, spend time with them, care about them, pray for them. Ask how you can pray for someone It tells you a whole lot about them, doesn't it? How can I pray for you? Yeah. And then he says this in our text from 35, you were willing to rejoice for a while. In other words, believing he was a prophet, that John the Baptist, as... One writer said attracted immense attention and awakened the curiosity of the whole Jewish nation. They seemed to take pleasure in coming to him, hearing him, following him, and submitting to his baptism. So why aren't you doing that anymore? What happened to that? Mark 6.20, even Herod Antipas, right? One of the Herods feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he respected him. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Oh, I like what you're saying now. I like what you're saying now because I can still plug in my expectations. You're the king, right? You're here to conquer, right? Yeah, this is awesome. I'll listen to you all day long. This is great. But he was perplexed. Because some of the things, this Herod Antipas, he's perplexed, the text says, because some of the things he's saying are probably really challenging him. Do some of the things that you say, those of you who are believers, challenge other people? (laughs) Do they look perplexed? Now you know where that's coming from. Keep talking about the truth and watch what happens. Keep pressing the truth and watch what happens. You see? For a while, you are willing to rejoice for a while. Oh, that troubled me. I'm like, why? It's obviously short-lived then. As long as John preached the things that fit their chosen belief that they approved of him, they would follow him. Things that didn't challenge, interfere, or disrupt their desires or expectations. No, now we'll follow him, but something happened. They dropped off at some point, stopped following him. Jesus is pointing that out. Why? To be provocative, to get them to think about it. Why do you think you stopped following him? The truths that he preached, Jesus preached, were very, very provocative. And as I said earlier, even polarizing. At one point, you remember, he had at least hundreds, maybe thousands that were gathered there listening to him. And when he gets to the harder parts, they all turned and walked away. You remember that? What did he turn and say to Peter? He's got that handful of disciples standing there. They probably don't know what to do. Should we go with those guys? Or should we stay? Are you going to leave too, he said? Are you going to leave? This kind of preaching that John the Baptist went into, obviously made their fondness, their fascination, and their following of him fickle, as it did, as we see, with Jesus. How big was his church when he was hung on the cross? Do you know? 120. That's considered a small church in America today. 120 were gathered in the upper room to pray. That's all. Jesus the Christ. Why? This is why. You were willing to rejoice for a while. For a while. So long as the preacher preaches doctrinal truths that people approve of and that they, then they respect and appreciate and follow his preaching. But not, not any longer. Why did you stop following John the Baptist? You're going to do the same thing to me, he could say. Whenever those truths that were preached challenged them, became personal confronting them, calling them to repentance, their hearts turned away from Him. They didn't want to hear it anymore. Now, I, I, I'm not following John the Baptist anymore. I don't know who he is. And then all of the aspersions come. The excuses for why they're not following him anymore. Because they're not going to admit it was the truth that actually sent them off. Their hearts were turned away and they went to seek someone else to follow What happened to John the Baptist, by the way? When he came off of the, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow, the king's here, the Messiah. He's going to deliver us from the Roman government. What happened when he talked to Herod the Tetrarch and says, you're living, you're marrying your brother Philip's wife. He didn't like hearing that. But it's funny because when he and his drunken friends had the party and his brother's wife, who's living with him now, Herodias, is there, she hated John the Baptist. Why? Because he's such a nasty guy because she hated what he said. She hated. Do people like having their sin pointed out? Goodness, no. Uh Uh-uh. I don't like it. (laughs) Just to give you a heads up. (laughs) So, Salome comes and dances, right? Herodias' daughter. And he said, you know, he's drunk. He says, I'll give you anything you want up to the half of my kingdom. And she goes to her mom. And her mom says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Why? People respected him. He was the prophet. Not anymore. He's no prophet to me. I'm not listening to that anymore. He's dead to me. (laughs) Quite literally, after that dance, they went down to the prison. And it said something interesting. It said Herod was sorry to have to do that. Because see, John the Baptist initially was likable. But they grow long enough in the preaching, enough truth is unfurled that begins to penetrate their hearts, personal things that are beginning to change them, which is exactly what God does to everyone that belongs to him. I'm done with this. Kill him. Cut his head off. Still one of my favorite statements by, that, by the preacher that we all respect, John, uh, Steve Lawson. I love that. I wish I'd have thought of this. The problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them. You preach the whole counsel of God, and people don't really like you that much. That's just the way it is. It's not popular because we're all sinners. It's hard to hear the truth that Jesus came to bring. Oh, how quickly these things change when truths proclaim no longer meet personal expectations all those that made them just rejoice in being in his company and listening to his preaching, it's, it's gone now. Because they require too much humility, self-examination, self-confrontation, conviction and repentance. A theologian from way back in the day, we're talking 1600s back in the day, wrote this, It has been an old practice among professing Christians not to like their pastor long, <laughs> John the Baptist was not changed, but his hearers were changed. He did burn and shine with equal zeal and lustre to the last, but they had changed their thoughts of him End quote verse thirty six But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, he's saying the very very thing that they all know to be true for sure. That is, I'm healing people. I'm showing the signs of deity. So only God can do that. What does that imply? So in John chapter 10, verse 25, they, this is where, what I referred to earlier when they said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> this is chapter 10, almost halfway through this gospel. He's proved it over and over and over. We're in chapter 5. okay? Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. should end there. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. How do you think they like that? You said plainly. You said plainly, didn't you? Okay, here it is. I and the Father are one. Can you equivocate on that statement at all? on that grand proclamation. Not even a little bit. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. What do you mean plainly? Here it is. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Um, yeah, you're picking up on it now. That's exactly right. That's precisely who I am. John 14, a few chapters later, verse 11. Believe me, this is Jesus again, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He never bandies words. He's always very succinct, very clear, plain language. There's no question about it. Verse 37 as we're coming to our final verse here this morning. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. You think you know him so well? You've never seen him. You've never heard him. And yet you say you know him. You don't know my Father. You don't know him. So when he says the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And that's going to be for next time when we finish out the rest of the chapter You search the scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. You've got it so covered up with all of your traditions of men, like barnacles. It can't breathe. Moses can't breathe anymore. Breathe truth or or life. Because if you believed even Moses, you would believe me. That's the truth. And then he says, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Why? Well, because Jesus is the voice and the form of God. John fourteen nine and 10, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, the Father who dwells in me does his works. So if you're looking at me, you've seen the Father. That's why he says to Philip, how, Philip, how, how can you ask about seeing the Father? If you, if, if you see me, you see the Father. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. So the works, the words are coming of the Father, are coming through Christ. They're His own. He is the Logos. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word, what? Loves God. That's the very first verse of this gospel. It couldn't get any more clear. But it couldn't get any more shocking. For whatever the Father does... The Son does likewise. Chapter 5, verse 19. And the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Chapter 14, verse 24. Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You can't see Him. You can't hear Him. But you have Christ. And that's seeing and hearing Him. Hendrickson said the hostile Jews have failed to see in Jesus the voice and the form of God. They have failed through unbelief. quote. That's a choice. They have failed through unbelief. And now, hold on to your heads. We believers are now the voice and body of Christ. Listen to the word. Colossians 2, 9 and 11. 9 to 11. For in Him, that is Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If you know Christ, if you've settled things with God through his son, Jesus Christ, he is in you. When he sent the Holy Spirit, that was a seal that he's put upon you. So now, like Jesus except we don't have a position on the Trinity, and that's a big difference. Uh, Otherwise, you are His voice. Well, you should hear some of the stuff I said this week. No, not that stuff. When you're thinking and speaking biblically, when you're letting no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, only that which is useful for edification, (laughs) that it might administer grace unto the hearers, as Ephesians 4.29 says, you're His voice. You're His form. You're His body. What does 1 Corinthians 6 say? First Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You are literally the walking, talking representative of Jesus Christ. Chapter, that was chapter 6, verse 15. Verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Verse 19 to 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So I end with this reminder. And if this isn't you, you can settle that issue right now. If you're hearing from God, from His Word, and you are, if you're considering these things and your own will, And your own desires are not in the way. You can settle this right now because Acts chapter 1, at the ascension of Christ, when he left, he made it clear that he would still have his Holy Spirit here. In what form? Well, let me read the verse and we'll close. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The testimony of the Father, the testimony of the works, the testimony of John the Baptist. But they would be confronted with those things, and when the implications of that in their life hit them, they turned away. And now this witness continues on. Remember, it's present tense this other witness for Christ, how is it present today? He's not here, not in bodily form. You can't hear his voice. If you do, make an appointment for counseling with Josh Coleman. He likes people who are hearing voices. It's you and me. He's giving you his word. This is our book. He doesn't have another single word that he needs or wants to tell you other than what's in the whole counsel of God. If you haven't, settle that now with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these truths so powerful. We thank you for the witness of the Father and all of the many, many, many witnesses while you were here that prove that you are the Son of God the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of this world. Lord, thank you for the joy that we have in knowing you. Thank you for the light that you light in our hearts, illuminating our path, making a way for us. A lighted path is the only way to know how to follow you. And you call us to follow you. My sheep hear my voice and they know me, and they follow me. So, Lord, thank you for that. I pray for those as they pray now to make things fully reconciled with you and recognizing who you are according to your word and the life that you've called them to. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.